And so we're going to start with Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. Matthew 6, 19 through 24 is where we're going we're to pick up our study. Matthew 6, 19 says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye of the lamp is the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, take these words this morning and apply them to our lives. Help us to truly see your heart in this matter of how we deal with wealth and, and, and the material possessions that you've given us. May we seek to always honor and glorify you in, in everything that you've blessed us with. We give you the honor and the praise this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Um, so we, just to give you show where we're at in the Sermon on the Mount and in the context here in Matthew... Uh, the context leading up to this point has been the contrast between the righteousness of the Pharisees and Christ's righteousness. And that kind of culminated right before we get to this passage with the, with the study of um, how the Pharisees' righteousness was about even doing their worship to be seen of men instead of being seen of God. And Jesus' response in all of the situations, whether it was giving to the poor or, or praying or fasting was if you do this just to be seen of men and your righteousness is all about being seen by people, then you've had your complete reward. And the ultimate answer was we, we do these things not to be seen by other people, but for our own spiritual benefit as we live out our lives and our relationship with God the Father and Jesus Christ. And so he, he builds on that now and where he has contrasted in previously the transience of men's approval compared with the permanence of God's approval, now he's going to contrast the, 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 the way it pertains to wealth. So the same way that our worship can either be to just to be seen of men, and then it means nothing, or to be seen of God where it has hope for eternity, our wealth can either be used, and, and we can either view it as a way to just do things here on earth, or ultimately we build up treasure in heaven, which is what he's taking, talking about here. Both situations have to deal with misplaced and worldly priorities. Jesus takes the time to deal with this issue in order to show us that in his kingdom, the perspective on money and on wealth is different. And the other thing that he's doing here is, is he's going to actually, we're actually going to be introduced to where Gunner is going to go with this passage next week. If I just want to start with kind of looking at verse 25, because verse 25 starts out this way, in Matthew 6, 25, where, where this is where Gunner's going to start next week. It says, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body. So he's going to start next week talking about worry. But he starts it off by saying, therefore, so, you know, uh, for this reason. So he starts today, though, talking about money, and then next week, he's going to build that into, you don't have to worry because you can fully trust God. Now, if your hope is set on money, then it's on something that's, that can fail and will go away. And that's the point he's making today. So 
where does this start then? He starts with this command. He says, he says in verse 19, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Now this could be rendered as well, Stop storing up treasures on earth. That's literally what he's saying. He's saying, stop this. You're wasting your time and effort. Um, what this basically comes down to is a prohibition against the love and the hoarding of wealth. I think it goes right along with what with, with the Jesus is basically expounding on the idea that Paul puts forth in 1 Timothy. When Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.10, For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Notice what he does not say there. He doesn't say money is the root of all evil. But he says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And so what Jesus is talking about today is that is how our reaction and our response to wealth is supposed to look different in the kingdom economy than what the world puts forth. So he goes on and he says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's interesting to me that he uses, he contrasts two, he uses the illustration here that would apply at all times and all places. I don't care what era you live in, if you lived 2,000 years ago, you still have clothes, you still understand what rust is, and no matter when you live, you understand what thieves are. And so he uses an illustration that no, for us who live here in the 21st century, it still totally applies. So if you, if you had lived back then, clothes were worth a whole lot more because you didn't, they didn't get made in a factory in Thailand or in Bangladesh um, you know, by the boatload. They got made by moms sitting at home, you know, hand doing on a weave. I don't know how to do all that, but you, some, of, some of you have probably seen it. And they, make, they had to hand make all the cloth. They had to tie th- you know, they had to sew things together. And, and, and it was all done by hand. So if you had something like that, it wasn't disposable. It was worth money. Um, it, they would show uh, how much they cared about someone by how much uh, love would go into what they were given. Think back to Joseph. Joseph was, was shown his love by his father because he was given this coat of many colors. It's, it made his brothers jealous because here his dad gave him a coat that was probably worth a ton of money. I mean, we now take it for granted that we can have all these colors in our clothes, but do you know how difficult it would be by hand to put in all these lines that are in my shirt this morning? That's difficult, and to make the dye and everything that goes with it. So giving someone this multicolored coat that was not just the, the normal, you know, cotton comes out, like if you just make something plain cotton and no dye in it, it it's kind of a brownish, whitish color. It's not real fun to look at. And so... By giving someone something like that, it's it's a valuable item. So, and so it's talking of something that has a lot of value to it. But no matter when you live, guess what? I I looked it up just to make sure. But moths can destroy any fabric. I know I kind of grew up hearing, okay, well, yeah, that's wool, so we don't store it in the closet. Or if we do, we put tons of mothballs in it, and then it smells terrible um, when you open up the closet door. I'm sure some people remember that. Um, 
we have a cedar chest uh, in our house, and you can open it up, and it smells like cedar, and supposedly that keeps the moths away, although scientifically there's not enough chemical in there to actually do that. But um, So moths can destroy anything. You can have silk, and moths will destroy it. And so no matter what we do to protect it, if you don't put it in a glass case with air removed out of it, the moths can get to it. They can destroy it. And they can take that $400 Louis Vuitton shirt you might wear, and they can make it as worthless as that rag that's sitting in your bag right now. So moths can destroy the most expensive item. Then it talks about rust. Um, it's interesting to me that, so last week, Gunner, Gunner kind of made fun of me a little bit because we went on this trip together and I get a little excited about food. Well, I have nothing to really make fun of him for, but we did have the unique experience of we get to our hotel and, and it's like the only hotel because this is out in the middle of nowhere in Ohio. Um, it's not near Cleveland. Um, sorry, Melanie, but it really is. And um, so <laughs> we're out in this one hotel in the entire area, but we pull up there and it's a huge hotel. And there are, there's like probably 20 to 30 Rolls Royces parked in the back parking lot with caution tape around them so nobody could bother them. Now, I am not a massive car guy. RJ, who is in the first service, and, and Pete, those guys are massive car guys. And they can tell you like everything about cars and all this. But I do know one thing. A Rolls Royce Silver Ghost, which was what all of these were, are very expensive cars. One guy was like, he didn't want to come right out and say, but he's like, yeah, you need to be heading towards a million before you get near the price I paid for the car. Um, so these are like really expensive cars. They're also extremely well built. The Rolls-Royce Silver Ghost was literally one of the best built cars ever in the history of car manufacturing. That's why also they cost like three years of the, average, of the rich person's salary at that time. So all these cars were there. So I was thinking about it and I looked up, that's considered one of the best automobiles th the industry's ever produced. There were 7,874 Rolls-Royces, Silver Ghosts, produced. Out of that number, only 1,500 are still on the road, road where they did. Now, that's actually a huge number. Um, that's 19% of a car that's over 100 years old, that's still or almost 100 years old, that's still driving on the road. That's a good percent. Compare that with the Model T Ford, because Henry Ford came along and said, no, I can do better than that. We need to put everybody in a car because nobody can afford a Rolls Royce. So I'm going to build the Model T at $350 a car and put everybody in America in a car and around the world. So he built 15 million Model Ts. You know how many Model Ts are still on the road today? 60,000. And you think, wow, that's pretty good. That's a good number. No, that is four-tenths of one percent of of 15 million cars built, and they are all rusting in junk heaps today. The best we can come up with is to keep 19% of a car running for almost 100 years. That's at man's best in what we build as far as, machine, as far as car mechanics go. And most of our stuff goes the way of the Model T. Ends up in a junk heap somewhere completely destroyed. Now today, obviously, we use more metal. But even at that time, you think about the, 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 the castles and stuff that were built even in the Middle Ages. And, this, and the Bible at this time is 2,000 years ago. You go to Israel today, you're not walking on the original roads. You're walking on a few rocks from the original roads. You're not seeing the original walls in most cases. You're seeing a few sections of the original wall with a lot of upkeep and maintenance and rebuilding. 
because things get destroyed. Things fall down. Clothes gets eaten by moths. Metal rust. And if, all, if you could protect it from all of those natural things, guess what? There are people out there who want to steal everything that's worth anything. And so the Egyptians built humongous pyramids and put in traps so you couldn't get into them. And they put all these mazes inside of them so they could protect the emperors, their kings, and their wealth, and the gold, and everything else. And you know what? We've found one tomb out of hundreds. King Tut was so famous because that was the one tomb we opened, and thieves hadn't actually gotten in and stolen everything in it. And so all this stuff that we do to protect all these things that we think are so important. And Jesus is saying, all that stuff, it can be gone in an instant, And so he contrasts that and says, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Instead of all that stuff that you think is important, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there is your heart also. Now what, we have to look at two sides of this. First of all, we have to look at what he is not saying. Because there are some people that will say, well then, okay, well I guess the answer is I give everything away, I live in poverty, I take a vow of poverty, and I just kind of move away from everything, and maybe I'll let myself own a paper sack to wear. I don't think that's the answer. Don't come next week all wearing paper sacks. Okay? The first thing I think he's not saying is it's wrong to earn money. In 1 Timothy 5.8, it says this, But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. The Bible actually teaches, Paul is telling Timothy here, a man going into the ministry, which doesn't pay ridiculously well. And he says, it is wrong if you do not provide for your own family. You have a responsibility to go make money. You're actually commanded that you're supposed to take care of the ones that God has entrusted to you. And whether that looks like a one-earner family or a two-earner family, or, or however that looks... We have a responsibility to provide for those that have been entrusted to us. And so it's not wrong to earn money. As a matter of fact, thinking back to how this chapter starts, Matthew chapter 6, 2, that, like I said, Gunnar had me preach on all these money passages. I'm just saying. But so it starts off and he says, when you give to the poor. Well, guess what? If there's not people with money, there's not any giving to the poor. I don't know too many poor people who who need me to give them a few dollars who can then take those few dollars and give them away to someone else, because then they're going to starve. So we have a responsibility to actually go out and earn money. The second thing he's saying is, he's not saying it's wrong to plan for the future. In Proverbs chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, it says, Go to the ant, O sluggard, observe her ways and be wise, which having no chief, officer, or ruler, prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. What he's saying here is Solomon is actually telling us, go look at nature. Even the ants go and prepare for the future. They know when the winter's coming, so they go out and they gather everything so that when the cold comes and they're going to die if they go outside, they can live in their little nice house with all their food they've stored up. And so the, the application of that to us is we are supposed to prepare for the future. We are. So it's not wrong to have your 401k. It's not wrong to have your pension, your Roth IRA, your other ways that you're preparing for your future. You're buying your house so you don't have to blow money on rent or however you see it. 
All of these things are not wrong to plan for your future. In fact, in Luke chapter 14, Jesus, in um, teaching on discipleship, uses this illustration. In Luke 14, 28, it says, For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. In other words, Jesus is using, as he talks about discipleship, an illustration that says, you're supposed to plan things out. One of the things that I, I, have, that I respect more than anything about Gunner is when, when he came here, and I wasn't here, obviously, eight years ago, but when he came here, and as we celebrate our eight-year anniversary, one of the things that was different when he came, this building was mortgaged. It had a huge amount of money left on it, and it, it, it was slowly, slowly being paid for. They kind of met their obligations, but it wasn't, he, because of, and if any of you know Gunner, he's a, I'm not going to, yeah, he's, um, he's a stickler for money. Every penny, I mean, just every penny. He, he wouldn't like it if I said that if he's here. But, yeah, every penny is accounted for. He doesn't really like to spend money either. And so he's been really, like, he got the building paid off. It really is more than anything because of his real skill with money. Um, uh, you know, you can ask Debbie. She sees the books. Um, she, he is very stickler with money. And it's, but it's because of that that the church is in such a good financial position and a situation. And, and truly, it is because of his vision in that area. And, and God used him for that. But was it wrong then for the church, for the pastor to lead a church, to say, hey, we're going to be smart about this, we're going to plan for the future, we're going to take care of things? Absolutely not. I think God gives us that responsibility and that we're actually entrusted with things so that we can prove to be responsible stewards of what God has given us. And so, yes, you should be planning for the future. You should be planning for that 401k and all the other things that go along with that. But then there's a third way. I think most of us would agree on that. And, and I've always kind of thought that, you know, obviously, people need their money to live and people need to take care of their families. And, of course, you plan for your future when you may not be able to take care of yourself as well. But there is a third thing here because then the thought is, okay, well, yeah, I know I should earn money. I know I can take care of myself, but man, Disney World's, Disneyland's right up the road. And when I lived in Florida, I, I kind of liked Disney World and I really wanted to go see it, but I mean, I don't need to do that. I could just sit at home all the time and I like to eat out. I know Gunner makes a point of that, but I like to eat out and, um, you know, may, I'd like to do it more than once a year. So that kind of means it's going to cost me a little bit more than just going out to the grocery store and, and preparing it at home. So is that all right? Am I allowed to enjoy it a little bit? Well, it's interesting that in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, and we're going to actually look at this for a, couple, for a little bit here. In 1 Timothy 6, 17, this is spoken to rich people. Like he actually calls them rich. And he says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us, and then this is the key, with all things to just get by? No, it says to enjoy. He gives us all things. He's talking to rich people here, obviously monetary value. And he says, God has given you that money to enjoy. Now there's another part to that, and he says, don't start trusting it. Don't make it your idol. But he says, 
He's given you all things to enjoy. So there's no reason to feel bad when you take a vacation. There's no reason to feel bad when you go out and you say, you know what, maybe I don't need to be driving around in a 25-year-old jalopy and can afford something a little nicer that'll get better mileage and, and be a little nicer to drive. Um, so yes, it's, it, it is not wrong to enjoy what we earn. So what he is not saying is it's wrong to earn money, it's wrong to plan for the future, and it's wrong to enjoy what we earn. So what is he saying here? We're going to stay in this first passage, and the first thing that we see is that we should focus on heavenly treasure instead of earthly. Now that's easy to say, and I, I, at first I was like, okay, well that's easy, we'll just skip on by that, we'll focus on heavenly treasure, but what is heavenly treasure? I know what earthly treasure is, okay? When I go to my bank account, and I love doing everything online, so I love it that I have an app on my phone, and I can go right to Navy Federal, and I can see exactly how much money is, is in my Navy Federal account, and it's awesome. And I can see every day how much I've spent, and I can see where all my money goes. But, you know, I thought about it, and there's no app for the first, heaven, the first God bank, the first heaven bank. It'd be nice if there was, and I could look in there and say, wow, Ben Howard has a million heaven dollars today, and maybe I could bank some more or withdraw some when I needed them, but that's not the way heavenly treasure works. And so we have to figure out what exactly is heavenly treasure compared to earthly treasure. And I don't think this is a, this is not an all-encompassing list, but but I kind of thought about three areas that the Bible is very clear that this is what builds heavenly treasure in God's eyes. And we can start right there with this passage. Start with the context of this very passage. It starts off and says, Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth. And then it says, But store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. So if we're not supposed to store up for ourselves, then what's the alternative? Because obviously we're getting money. We're, we're, we have money that we're earning, that we're making, that we're hopefully being good stewards of. So what's the point? The point is, going back to where we started in chapter 6, generosity. He says, when you give to the poor, we're, Christians are supposed to be generous people. We're supposed to be people known for their generosity. And that's where heavenly treasure starts. It's interesting, we're going to go back to the passage we just looked at, 1 Timothy 6.17 and and through verse 19. We've already read the first verse, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. He goes on in verse 18 and says, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. He actually tells the people who are rich, and make no mistake, if we live in the United States today, there are very few of us that cannot honestly say, compared to the wealth distributed around the world, that we are not rich. We all have stuff we could cut out of our budget. We all have areas we could make slimmer. And so on the scale of the world, we're all rich. And he says, in this present world, we're supposed to be focused on, on being rich in good works, which are to be generous and ready to share. If we want to build up heavenly treasure, if you want to put money in your heavenly bank account, if you want to look at it that way, and I don't think that's the way it really works, but then be a generous person. Be willing to give when the need arises. 
that's what generosity is, and that's what God expects of his people. And that's the way we begin to build heavenly treasure. There's a second way, a second area that I see where we build heavenly treasure. That's in Matthew 10, 42. A simple verse here that Jesus says, and he says, whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. How do we build rewards in heaven, treasures in heaven? Giving generously, but then also just kindness. Giving a cup of cold water costs nothing. But Jesus says, when you give a cup of cold water in my name, or even the name of a disciple here, he says, if you give a cup of cold water to someone as a believer, that kindness to that person banks as heavenly treasure. Yesterday, um, we had an amazing time passing out coffee. Uh, Henry was there helping. Josh was there. Dorothy, uh, Ruth was there. Uh, Jackie Moore was there. Um, and Dave Langat. And we, um, uh, while everybody else got to have fun in the rain, riding on the back of a truck for the, for the parade, and it looked like a lot of fun, we got to give out coffee. And honestly, it was a blessing to get to interact with a lot of the, all the people from Valley Center and, and, and just... Um, you know, I'm not saying that, that God's banking a whole lot on our credit because we gave out cups of coffee, but I truly do believe that that little bit of kindness to our neighbors as a church is one of the ways that God expects us to be building up heavenly treasure instead of earthly treasure. And, 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 and to even just be able to tell people as they would come up and be like, oh, where's your donation cup? And we were like, we don't have a donation cup. This is totally free. We're just doing it to be a blessing in the community. We're from Valley Baptist Church right up the road. That's what it's talking about here. Kindness with no expectation of return. And so that is what building heavenly treasure is all about. And then there's one more area that I think we fail to think of. Those things are kind of things we do for others, things we, um, things we can give out of what God gives us. But there's a third area that I think sometimes gets forgotten, and that we see that in 2 Corinthians 4.17. The Bible says, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Someday in each one of our lives, there's going to come a time, even if it's at the end of our life, where finally our health is failing, there's nothing else the doctors can do, they've done everything they can, and ultimately, everything we've earned on this earth is going to be completely left behind. And the only thing that's going to matter is our relationship with God. And at that point, the only thing that matters is what is in eternity. And if we want to have, and, and the Bible says that when we go through times in our lives of affliction, of suffering, how we respond to that as a believer is literally building up a weight of glory in heaven. In other words, we're earning heavenly rewards for how we respond to situations and circumstances that come into our lives here on earth. And in most of those situations, when you're going through physical pain, when a doctor has told you you have cancer and you may not recover, when you're facing um, um, ongoing issues that can't be solved, there is not, you can't, pull out a million dollars and give it to God and say, God, I want this healed. It doesn't work that way. And all the money in the world means nothing. But when you respond to that situation in a Christ-like way, drawing closer to God, giving glory to Him, and letting Him work through your life, as you respond that way, you build up heavenly treasure. 
where God sees that and it is counted to your credit and glory. And so whether that suffering ends in death or whether that suffering just ends in things getting better and you going on with your life, God is glorified by what is happening and that is given to your credit and to your account in heaven. I believe that's what it means when it says it is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And when Paul wrote this to the Corinthians, he wasn't writing to a group of people who, like us, live in a country where this weekend we celebrate a day, a memorial day, recognizing the, the, the 650,000 men and women who've given their lives from the time our country was founded till now, who died so that we can have the right to come here and study our Bible and, and openly be believers in Christ. He was writing to a people who lived in a land that was anti-Christian, that was anti-Christ, that had put Christ to death. And he says, when you respond to suffering, suffering that we would never know about, when you respond well to that, it produces for you an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. So what is he saying? We should focus on heavenly treasure instead of earthly. The second thing he's saying here is greed and coveting money is wrong. A good definition of greed is seen in Luke chapter 12, verses 15 through 21. Jesus said, then he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns, I'll build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. I think here we have defined for us that greed is the desire for more when you already have enough. Here was a man who had fields and fields and the crops coming in and he had all the, all the money already. And instead of looking at it and saying, you know, like we've already talked about being a generous person and well, I have extra, maybe somebody, they can come use it. Let the poor people come in. His answer was, I'm just going to hoard more of it. Let's build a bigger barn. Let's build a bigger silo. Let's put more stuff in there that I'll never be able to use and it's probably going to rot. And Jesus says, you're a fool if you act that way because your greed ultimately leaves you with nothing. And so greed and coveting money is definitely what he's saying is wrong in this situation. And then the last part, and it's based on the last part of verse 21. The last thing that Jesus is saying here, he ends verse 21 by saying, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I believe what he's saying here and what he's telling us, the third thing that he is saying is that our hearts are drawn to what we treasure. This can be seen in Luke's passage above. That the man who had everything 
and, and, he, and his, he took his eyes off the fact that God was the one who gave him all of that stuff, and he started looking at the stuff and saying, I want more, I want more, I want more. And ultimately, his heart was, was never towards God, and it was focused totally on what he had, the wealth he could have, the wealth he could make. The end state might have been a strong bank account, but it was a weak spiritual condition. The man's heart had been pulled away from God because his focus had turned from God to wealth. And I think one of the problems with money is not the money itself, but that it is so easy to get our eyes focused on the money or what it can buy. And once we have that, we think it makes us feel good and we we think it gives us satisfaction And so we want more and more, and all of a sudden, before we know it, we can still be sitting in a church on Sunday, but our entire life during the week is completely focused on what we can get, what we can make, what we can experience with the money that we have. And we've lost fact, we've lost track to the fact that everything we have comes from God, and it's truly a blessing from Him. So Jesus begins this discussion of money by warning us not to love it, not to live for it, and then proceeds into a metaphor of what love of money leads to. We, we come to verse 22 and 23 here, and it says, The eye is the lamp of the body, so then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now this is an interesting passage because we're talking about money here, and it's obvious that the first part, and then verse 24, is talking about money. But then there's these two verses about an eye. And at first read, it's kind of a weird metaphor. And at first glance, it may not totally fit the context. But it is obvious that just as he's been contrasting the, um, he's been contrasting storing treasure on earth with treasure in heaven, he's now contrasting two human things, an eye. And, uh, and, and, and it's interesting that he says, he starts with a good eye, and then he starts with a bad eye. The word clear there, where it says the eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is clear, it's not a very clear word, unfortunately. Um, because the word can be translated as healthy in a physical way, So that, um, and I do think that's kind of what it's talking about here, that if you have a healthy eye, you can obviously see. If you have a cataract or something, it's not going to be clear, it's, it's blurry, it's harder to see. So, so we can understand that on a, on a, on a physical sense. But, but there's a spiritual sense here, and I think that's why the King James kind of picks it up. If, I memorized this in King James a long time ago. And, and, it, and it, the word in King James is, he, if your eye is single. And, and growing up, I never understood that, because I, I didn't understand King James English. That's why I use NAS and NIV now. But So I would sit there and think, well, if my eye is single, so am I going to poke my eye out? That wasn't the meaning of the word. The meaning was that the focus was focused on one part and everything else moved out of the way. So that you had a sole source of focus. Instead of the way that I like, you know, I, I lose focus very easily, so I'll be looking at one part. Oh, there's something. Like the dog on up. Um, so, uh, squirrel. Um, so that that's kind of what he's saying here. That that single eye, that, that clear eye, is one that is completely focused on what it should be. It's not got a divided vision. It's not looking over here and then looking over here and then looking over here. They're focused on the goal, the source. 
the word bad there can be used in a physical way and a moral way as well. It could be an unhealthy eye, which is kind of, he's using it metaphorically there. But it was interesting that there's a Jewish metaphor that may be at play here where the, the, the Jews had this, this way of talking about an evil eye. And that may actually be because it was kind of the similar word and phrasing that here Jesus is kind of pulling that metaphor into play and saying that if you have this evil eye that's focused on the wrong things, that your whole body will be full of darkness. Ultimately, I believe what he is really saying here, that metaphorically, that like our heart follows a treasure, and it can't ultimately have divided loyalties, that's what he just ended with, that your heart is going to go in the way that you treasure. If you treasure wealth, that's where you're going to end up. If you treasure God, that's where your focus is going to end up. So now he's saying, if our, we can't have two different focuses. You can't force your left and your right eye to go one here and one here. And if your focus is not on God, then ultimately your whole, your whole even though you may be sitting in a pew of a, in a chair in a church, your heart will ultimately be full of darkness. And he's reminding us that our focus has to be on God. It's interesting that he ends there and says, if this light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Psalm 119, 36 and 37 has the same idea when it says, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Turn away my eyes from looking at vanity and revive me in your ways. The word there, dishonest, in Psalm 119, 36 isn't actually there. If you notice, it's in um, italics. What it really says is, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to gain. If our eyes, if our focus is on wealth and on building up wealth, then our eyes are not on God. And the psalmist's prayer there, David's prayer, is turn my eyes from looking at vanity, looking at wealth, and when I do that, Lord, revive my heart towards you. The answer to greed, the answer to our heart being focused on the right thing is simply to turn to God and say, God, revive my heart. Help me to have single vision, whole vision, totally clearly focused on Jesus Christ and on him alone and not on stuff of this world. The, the worst part is the way it ends here that where it says that if the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? The, 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 the sad part here is there are so many people that, that think they're a Christian, or they may be a Christian, but they're missing the full impact of God in their life because they, they, think, they think they can have divided loyalties. And they think, okay, well, I can stay here and I can love this job so much and, and God, you may be calling me away, but, but no, I, I need this job. I, 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 there's no other way I can take care of my family. This is what I have to do. And, and so they, they're, they're like, okay, I want God, but, but don't, I have to stay here. I have to live here. I have to have this job. I have to make this money. And their loyalties, they think they're divided, but what in truth is happening is their whole body is full of darkness. You cannot serve both God and money, and that's actually where he's going with this now. This may explain Matthew 19.24 when it says that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Fortunately, Jesus goes on from there and says, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. We know there are plenty of rich people that are Christians, thank goodness. There are people who own multi-million dollar businesses that are doing great things around the world for missions. But one of the problems with money, like uh, 
that differs from other ways we can sin is that greed can so blind us to our need for God that we're left in complete darkness. It's very difficult for someone to see their need of God when they think they have no needs. When you can buy your way out of everything, when you can buy your happiness, or at least you think what is happiness, then you don't think you need God very much. But for the person on the other end of the spectrum, when you're down there and you have nothing and you have nowhere to turn, and your heart, everything about it is like, I have nothing and I'm hopeless, and then you turn to God, it's very easy for you to look and say, wow, you're right, <laughs> I have nothing, God, and I, I turn, I, I'm turning to you. And, and so that's why I think Jesus was saying that, that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. It's because it's so blinding to us um, that wealth can be. Jesus is warning us here not to love and live for money, which can easily deceive us into believing that it will give us fulfillment and security. And now he's going to lead us into where we will pick up next week that where our security should come from by explaining why you can't live for both money and God. So he says you're not supposed to live for money and God. You can't have this divided look. But why doesn't it work? Verse 24 ends the passage when it says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. The, 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 when it says here you can't serve two masters, the, the picture here is of slave masters. This isn't just employers. All of us have had, I've, I've worked two jobs in my life at one time. I, even now, I collect a paycheck from the Navy for the reserves and, and do a weekend for them and some other hours during the week that I don't want to do. And then I do, and then I work here at the church and I collect a paycheck from both. So we understand that we can work for two people and it's like, well, of course I can work for two people. And I can collect a paycheck from both. Most of us in high school probably did that on several occasions. What he's saying, though, is that God and wealth are like a slave master. A slave master owns the slave. You don't get to go and say, well, you know what? Today I'm going to come do your housework and do all the stuff you want me to do. But tomorrow I'm going to go over here and I'm going to work for this guy because he he also owns me. What? what, what? No, no, no. I... I own you. God is, is being pictured here as someone who we have to be completely, totally dedicated and sold out to. God cannot, does not divide his loyalty. God did not divide his loyalty to us and say, you know what, I'm going to like wound Jesus and just kind of kill him because we're just going to half save. He put his son to death on the cross. Gave him up for us all. And the Bible describes God as a jealous God who doesn't share his glory with others. The Israelites in the Old Testament, time after time, the sin they're condemned for across the board, start to finish, wasn't they lied too much, they, they failed to keep the sacrifices, although some of those things are named. What they are condemned for time after time after time when they lose the land and everything else is idolatry. The first commandment is you will have no other gods before me. And when we put money and possessions, vacations, things, clothes, whatever it is, even thinking that they're on the same level as God or anywhere, God says, no, it's about me. And you will serve me first. 
because I'm the one who saved you from eternity in hell. And so we cannot serve two masters. Your heart will be drawn away if you think you can. Ultimately, a life spent focused on accumulating wealth will lead your heart down a path of greed and away from God. And without even knowing it, your actions are going to demonstrate your true allegiance. And you can think, well, I'm just being, I'm just being frugal. I'm just being smart. I'm just pro- providing for my family. But are you willing to follow God no matter where he takes you, no matter what he takes you through, no matter what he takes away, and no matter what he gives? The answer to all of these things is the fact that the answer to idolatry, the answer to greed, the answer to everything is the person that is giving this teaching is the same one that's going to die on a cross so that you and I can be forgiven for every sin we've ever committed. And whether it's placing money above the place that God should have, whether it's placing things in the position that only God should have of our worship, or whether it's lying, whether it, whatever sin it is in our life that keeps us from being fully devoted to Him, the answer is Jesus Christ. Because He's the one who was teaching this, and He's also the one who ultimately fulfilled this by going to the cross and dying for our sins and paying for every single time that we failed to give God His proper place. And for those of us who are believers, we can reach out to Him and find forgiveness and mercy, and as the psalmist said, we can pray and ask God to revive us again and give us a wholehearted devotion of service to God. And for those of you in here who may not know Jesus Christ, the only answer to putting God first is recognizing Him as your Lord and Savior. The only one who died on a cross to save you from your sin and to pay the penalty for every single thing you've ever done wrong. And He's waiting for you today to reach out to Him in acceptance by faith of His forgiveness and His new birth through Jesus Christ. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, You have spoken on so many things in Your Word, and and today You've challenged us with the message that um, wealth is not supposed to control our lives. Too many times we get so focused on where the next paycheck's coming from and, and, and how you're going to meet our needs and we fail to, to truly put our lives under your lordship and everything under your subjection. Father, may you forgive us for that today. May you help us to focus completely and totally on you, that our lives would be lived 100% for you no matter whether we find ourselves with much or with little. We honor and glorify and lift up your name today in Jesus' name. Amen.